Hey, everyone, this is Jessica Rice, Communications Director at Renaissance Church, bringing you our sixth and final episode of our special podcast series called Real Love Conversations. These conversations have been running as a complement to our church's Real Love Sermon Series. And if you haven't had a chance to catch all of those sermons, I highly recommend you scroll through our feed and give each one a listen. Each message in this series has been equal parts challenging, encouraging, and enlightening for me as I think about my relationships and what it looks like for me to love others well in the way God calls us to. And then these real love conversations have been so great as we've gotten to hear people from the Renaissance community share honestly and really vulnerably about their relationship experiences, whether that's been in singleness, in marriage, in dating, or in divorce. We obviously haven't been able to cover every kind of relationship experience out there, but I've found points of connection in every story we've heard. And honestly, I'm even more convinced of how special of a community Renaissance Church is. In this final episode of Real Love Conversations, I'm joined by the one and only Jordan Rice, our church's lead pastor and my husband. If you've been around Renaissance for a while, you likely know that Jordan and I have a unique love story in that we were both married in our 20s to different people, and we were both also widowed in our 20s. Uh, This is a slightly longer episode, but that's because Jordan and I share some of our story, including parts that we would normally talk about maybe in a one-on-one conversation with people, but not necessarily from the stage on Sundays. And we also ask you all to submit questions for us to answer, and you guys had a lot of really good questions. So we felt it was important to try our best to answer all of those So with all of that said, I'm glad you're here, and here's my conversation with Jordan. Okay, so we're here with Jordan Rice. Yes, in the building, in the booth. In the booth. How are you feeling? Feeling pretty good. Feeling pretty good. Okay, well, we are excited for this. Uh, This is episode six in this Real Love Conversation series, and uh, we are going to be talking about real love. We have a lot of different questions that have been submitted from people at Renaissance. Uh, We're going to talk about dating. We're going to talk about heartbreak and loss. We're going to talk about conflict and marriage. And so I think it's going to be really good. Oh boy, here we go. (laughs) So, (laughs) right. This is not a therapy session. Let's just be clear about that. Okay, good. Uh, But Jordan, you are the lead pastor of Renaissance. Uh, You also happen to be married to me. Yes, I am. Yes. We've been married for, do you know how long? I know it hasn't been 10 yet. Oh, okay. Yes, we that's haven't had true. That party. That's true. It's been a, almost eight and a half years that we've been married. And uh, yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about our stories while we're here. Uh, we're going to go through as many questions as we can. Um, and so before we do all of those things, though, I'm thinking it could be really helpful. We've had these conversations. We've had this sermon series on real love And I think it would be great just to hear from you as our lead pastor about why you even felt like this real love relationship series was important for our community. Both practically and spiritually, 
the essence of our life is done in relationships. So like when they asked Jesus, what's the most important command? He said to love the Lord God with all your might, your soul, your strength and your, and your heart, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. And I just don't think that we have been equipped in the church to really have good, healthy relationships, both in our expectations of what those should look like and really to have a radically different understanding of what real love is, not the fake stuff. So that's a real, uh, from a spiritual perspective and from a practical perspective, there's just so many times I'm talking to someone, I'm like, I want to just grab them by the, the arms and shake them and say like, yo, you just need to do this. And I, I wanted to have a conversation over a number of weeks where we can outline an, a little bit of what that could look like in their life to improve some of the relationships that we're having and the way that we experience relationships, whether that's with a significant other or a coworker or a roommate or whatever. And still a lot more to be done, but we'll get we'll get to that later. Yeah, of course. It's like this series could go on and on and on, right? But we're trying our best to do our best in eight weeks. But I think it's been phenomenal. So thank you for leading us in this way. Okay, so a lot of people who maybe been around Renaissance since the church launched in 2014 have maybe heard you and I share a bit of our stories on stage. It's been a while since we've done that. Yeah, a couple um, of years at least. It's been a couple of years at least. And uh, we kind of reference it here or there. Sometimes when you're preaching, you'll say, you know, I'm widowed. My wife is also widowed. And then we got married. So, And it's always interesting to see the the alarm from the first time visitor who's I, looking with I know. Poor s- them. sad eyes. I know. Uh, so I was thinking that it would probably be helpful for us to share a bit of our story, catch people who might be newer up. Uh, but also, it's kind of fun doing this real love conversation thing, because maybe we can share pieces of our story that... The juicy part, yeah. The juicy fun part or funny part. That's not fit for the stage. That don't really get shared on stage. Um, And by talking about those parts, we actually probably will answer some of the dating questions and relationship questions that people had for us. So I figure I'll start with my story. So I got Married in May 2009 to a man named Jerron. I was 26 years old. He was 29. We had dated for a couple of years and been engaged for a year before getting married. And in my mind, he was pretty much the perfect person for me. And about two and a half months after we had been married, one night after work for both of us, I'm home chilling, unwinding from the day. He loved riding motorcycles and he was out for a ride with his friends uh, not far from home and there was a knock on the door and it was the girlfriend of one of the friends that he'd been out with that night and she told me that Jerron had been in an accident and like immediately my body is in full alarm mode but she tells me no don't worry he's okay hop in my car I'll give you a ride to the hospital so you can see him so I get to the hospital One of his friends meets me in the parking lot. He's really broken up, kind of crying, but saying he's going to be okay. He has a broken foot, you know, but he's going to be okay. I get into the hospital. I'm greeted by a nurse who immediately takes us into one of the family rooms. And he's saying, you know, I just need you to be strong right now. And I'm kind of confused by that comment from this nurse Like, okay, yeah, I can be strong, but what exactly do I need to be strong about? Like, aren't we talking about a broken foot here? 
And he said, no, I need you to be strong because the doctors are doing everything that they can. And I'm like, okay, again, they're doing everything they can to fix a broken foot. And he tells me, no, they're doing everything they can to keep him alive. And at that moment, I uh, jump on the phone with my mom. I tell her we have to pray that Jerron's in an accident. Um, I hang up with her and it's not long that the doctor enters the room, asks for me, uh, and tells me that they had done everything that they could, but that he was sorry that Jerron had died. And immediately I am like, no, there's absolutely no way you have to go back. You need to do something else. Uh, obviously there's nothing that can be done. And, like the grown men, his friends are around me in the family room. They're crying and covering their faces and family members are coming. I have to call his parents and break the news. Mm. And um, and ultimately, I have to, to leave the hospital that night and he is not coming home with me. And so uh, there I was. And I often say like in that moment, as a 26-year-old widow, I'm like, what is happening and mm. what comes next. Wow. Yeah, it's wild because about a week after that or whenever you posted on Facebook, one of my friends comes into the living room with his computer and I was with Danielle and uh, with a group of friends in Baltimore and my boy comes in and he's like, yo, we have to pray for this young woman because her husband just died in a motorcycle accident. And I remember that night talking to Danielle, we were about to get married probably a month or two after that. And I was like, I don't know how this, I don't know how this woman is not like in in a mental, in an insane asylum right now, because I would have lost my mind if that were me and me and Danielle pray for you that night. And never in a billion years would I have imagined that I'd be sitting across from you right now doing a podcast. So wild. Very wild. And uh, I've heard that story. You, I've heard you tell that story 50 times now, and I still kind of get chills and like in disbelief that that's what happened to you. It's pretty wild. Yeah. So, yeah, I got married to Danielle about a month or two after that happened. It was like maybe three weeks. Yeah, it was like three weeks. Three weeks later, you guys got married. Yeah, because it was, yeah, June. And, um, yeah, we got married in Baltimore. And when I first met Danielle, I remember the first night talking to her on the phone and being, like, blown away of, like, someone of her stature and her character and how cool she was and how sure of herself she was. And I had never to that point dated anybody like that. So I remember like falling for her hard and fast and you know, I'm a sucker. Mm-hmm. And, um, we got married a couple years after we met and she was someone who was always healthy. She didn't really like junk food. She'd always get on me for, you know, eating chocolate cake and stuff like that and candy, sneaking candy in the house. But about 10 months after she got, after we got married, uh, she got sick. And at first we thought that she was actually pregnant because she was waking up in the middle of the night and just like wake up with what we thought was morning sickness and nausea and just kind of like weak and just general malaise. So I went to the, you know, pharmacy excited, like, well, you know, I wasn't ready to be a dad yet, but man, this is, this is great. Mm -hmm. Came home with some pregnancy tests and none of them were positive. So we ended up going to the doctor a couple of days after she was still feeling sick. And the doctor said, oh, don't worry. There's like this chest virus thing going around. This is pre-COVID days when you could have a virus and people would say, don't worry. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's this virus thing going around, clear itself in a couple of days. 
couple of weeks later, I remember walking up the stairs in our apartment and she was always in good shape, but like she could not walk up a flight of stairs. So that night again, she got sick. And then we said, man, let's just go to the hospital, got to the hospital. And they were again saying, oh, don't worry. There's this chest virus thing going around, but there is some fluid around your heart. So we have to admit you to the hospital. And that was kind of scary to be admitted to the hospital. She was 25 at the time and had never really been sick a day in her life. And we were there for a couple of days and every day she got worse and worse, so much so that they had to move her to the ICU. And one day in the, in the ICU, I'll never forget looking at the, the heart rate monitor and her heart rate just laying down was in the 140s. And now with an Apple Watch who monitors my workouts, I know like, man, if you if your heart rate is 140 something, you're, you're moving, you're actually doing something. And that was her heart rate just laying down. And one day we were still still at the hospital and one of the, like, the nurse technicians came in and she said, listen, I'm not supposed to do this, but those doctors have no idea what they're doing with your wife. She's going to die here. And I remember being so terrified. Mm. I called my mother immediately. I said, Mom, we got to move it to a different hospital. Um, and we were in a hospital in Yonkers um, or somewhere in Westchester. And by the grace of God, we found a hospital. We, we knew a doctor that could get her transferred to Columbia. And Columbia Presbyterian, one of the best heart hospitals in the country. And as soon as we got to Columbia, the surgeon took one look at her records and said, we're doing surgery. Um, we're doing surgery tonight. And it went from just like, well, we'll see what we're going to do to we're having heart surgery tonight. And for the first time, they stopped saying, don't worry. Mm. And then they were saying, well, it should be about 45 minutes. And 45 minutes came and went. An hour, two hours, three hours came and went. And the doctor came out with this this crazy look on his face of like, and put his hand on my shoulder. And I was like almost buckled into the ground. Yeah. And he says, Mr. Rice, she's stable now, but we almost lost her. And what I see in her chest right now, I've never seen that before. And five days later, we found out that she had an incurable, inoperable tumor on her heart called primary cardiac angiosarcoma. And... They told her she only had about two or three weeks to live from that point. And thankfully, we had more time with her. She was much braver than I'll ever be uh, and lived 10 months and died 10 months later. And yeah, you leave the hospital at night and you're like, what do I do next? Yeah. Whew. Yes. Everything you said about having heard the story dozens of times and it's still kind of hitting hard and making me tear up is completely true. Um, So after going through all of that, I'm sure there was some time. I know there was some time. I know you. (laughs) I know there was some time before you decided to explore the possibility of dating again, being in a relationship again, being married again. Uh, What was that process like for you? Mine was unique because cancer steals a lot from you. It steals your health. It steals your appearance in some cases. Uh, it steals your strength, but it gives. It gave us the opportunity of time and conversations. And Danielle was very gracious to give me the gift of a conversation to tell me exactly what she wanted me to do with my life. And um, I don't know what strength it took to, to say those words t- to me um, through tears but I was very clear about like what my life, what she wanted my life to look like. And that was a gift to me. So for me, it wasn't what I would do. 
it was when I would do it and when I would move forward. And so much of it was as long as I was miserable, I knew that was a terrible time to like move forward and like try to pick up people. I was always like terrified of like going out on a date and being there just like crying at the table for no reason. (laughs) (laughs) The waiter's like, do you want butter? And I'm like, and I just break down crying at Cheesecake Factory because Danielle loved the brown bread or something like that. Yeah, that brown bread is amazing. It is amazing. It'll make you cry for different reasons. But <laughs> so, I, my one of my biggest litmus tests is when I was actually joyful again. Like, when could I enjoy life and enjoy what new opportunities could await me? Yeah, it felt like there was maybe space to also let a person in when you were yeah. able to let more of the joy in. And actually, very practically speaking, it was also asking my therapist. Hmm. Shout out to Dr. Rath, my therapist. She, uh, in a lot of ways, walked me through a lot of very complex situations. And I would just ask her, hey, do you think I'm, you know, I don't know, this happened. What do you think about this? And even though most of the time she doesn't give me advice in that scenario, she really did help steer me. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? Well, you know, for me, I was in a really dark and numb place, Mm. honestly, after Jerron died and, just so shocked by Mm. everything that was happening. And I didn't have those final conversations about what life should look like for me. Uh, And I, I so wish I had that, you know, I think that I wrestled a lot with what, what is it that you want me to do? You know, do you want me to date? Would he have wanted me to date? (laughs) Would you not want me to date? What is, what do I do? Um, And I think for me, there was a difference between dating, which in my numb state, it was like, Maybe there were people that I would go on a date with because they asked and I was like, whatever, you know, I don't care. (laughs) Um, Maybe it's better than just being in the house. Uh, And then a difference between that and then coming to a place maybe 18 months later of I may actually want to be in a relationship again and get married and have children. Like in my mind, it was almost like a means to an end, if nothing else, that I would need to get into a relationship and get married in order to have children, which was something that I wanted. So, but I don't think I ever expected to meet someone that I would be as excited about as I was with Jerron, you know, would be a nice person who I liked and my family liked, but I don't know that I would feel like, oh, this is the person for me or really excited and passionate about that person. Yeah, that's real. I mean, for me, it wasn't, it was a, a little bit of a question of, of the excitement, but also that Danielle and I had lived through so much together that I've never, I mean, at that point, I couldn't imagine being close to someone like I was to Danielle. Mm. So like to get the diagnosis, to hold each other in the hospital and cry together and to have those moments where you cherish every single moment, I just thought to myself, well, how can I, I mean, I'm not going to go from that to like a dinner at Friday's, you know what I mean? Like asking someone, how was your day? Or, you know, like, oh, what do you like to do for fun? It just felt like that would be impossible in so many different ways. So that was like a big obstacle for me in terms of thinking like that I would be with someone and really deeply connect with them. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. So then about 18 months after Danielle passed away in 2012, it's about three years after Jerron has passed away. 
uh, you have lunch with mutual friends of ours in New York City. Musa and Christina. Shout out to y'all. Musa and Christina. Right. And so what happens on that lunch? So we were hanging out in New York City and I actually was preaching that that Sunday uh, on why I still follow Jesus. And I told my story of losing Danielle and how that impacted me and my faith journey. And then we were at lunch and I asked uh, Christina, since I didn't know her, well, hey, what do you do for a living? And she says, oh, I do marketing and communications, but I really want to get my own like communications consulting practice or firm, whatever you can, communications people call it, like uh, like Jessica. And I was like, oh, that's like a good idea, but who's Jessica? And then she was like, well, surely you know who Jessica is. And I was like, oh, wow. And then I went back down memory lane and I remembered your story. And somebody actually sent me a link to your blog a week after Danielle died. And I didn't read it then because I didn't care about anything at that point. And they weren't trying to connect us romantically or anything. They just wanted to help offer some words of comfort and solace since they didn't know what to say to me. And uh, I went back that night and I read I read your blog. And by reading your blog, I meant I read like the whole thing from beginning to end. And when I shot you the message on Facebook, I didn't say that because that sounds super stalkerish. But I remember thinking to myself, like, wow, Jessica is like a really interesting person. And when I reached out to you, I didn't know what I wanted from that interaction other than I think she's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Right. On my end, I get this random... Facebook friend request uh, and a message, I guess, from you after I accepted it. At at first, I was like, do I know this person? Because we had a lot of people, mutual friends in common. uh, And I looked at your relationship status and it said you were widowed. So I accepted the request thinking, oh, this is probably someone who's maybe come across my blog because that would happen sometimes. They want to connect and build the whole widowed person network. Oh, I don't yeah. know. It's a weird network. I got stories <laughs> on that. We won't get into that. I know. So, uh, and then I remember kind of seeing your message and smiling to myself that you were kind of like, this might seem kind of random, but your name came up and I thought it would be cool to reach out. Uh, it took me a minute to get back to you. Yes, it did. Okay. But that wasn't for any reason. I mean, that was just me being me and Anyone who texts me knows it might be yes, 48 he, hours before I 72, respond. but yeah, go ahead. Okay, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so it was Christina who actually messaged me and was like, oh, we had lunch with this really cool guy, Jordan, and you guys have a lot of common things between you. You're both widowed and you both have these blogs. And I was like, oh, right, I need to go respond. And so I was very happy to respond when I did. And we started kind of messaging back and forth. And I guess we were just talking about what life looked like for us as young widowed people uh, and then kind of started joking about all kinds of things like Martin episodes yes. and uh, talking about things that we were into like photography and Before traveling. the record, I had to keep the conversation going. Oh. Yes. Is you that were, how you feel? You're not a conversation continuer. You were like giving me responses like 12 hours later and I had to keep on, keep, keep it on. Well, I don't think that that's very fair. That's, I was keeping the conversation going because when I would respond, I would have long responses. That's true. And ask questions. That's true. It's just that they weren't as timely as you would have liked. That's true. 
because I mean, I had things to do. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so then we go back and forth and those messages kind of get longer and longer. And then you tell me that you're going to be in D.C. because you have a ton of friends from that area. Danielle actually grew up in D.C. Monterey's, yeah. Yep. And, uh, and then obviously all the people from Morgan State, friends. And so you're like, yo, I'm going to be in town anyway. It would be cool to link up. I know that I'm relatively an internet stranger, but there's people who know me, who can vouch for me. So let's link for coffee or whatever. Yes. And to be very clear, uh, I absolutely had no intentions of being in D.C. if you said no. <laughs> I didn't even know where I was going to stay until I was on a turnpike, the New Jersey turnpike. And I was hitting up my, my random friends. Shout out to my boy, E. Uh, I was like, yo, bro, can I crash on your couch tonight? Because I'm on a pure dummy mission for this weekend. <laughs> I'll tell you about the details later. And he's just was like, that was my friends. They're like, yes, great. Yep. Yep. And so I remember at that point, I'm not even really telling my friends. I'm hanging out because it's like maybe Labor Day weekend. I'm hanging out with friends a bunch that weekend. And I'm not telling anybody that I'm meeting up with you. Because I'm like, this Too is... Too good to be true. Yeah, it's just like a really wild story. Like, what are the chances that two young widowed people would meet and it would really Click. be a thing? Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, you know, he's um, he's nice and he's funny, and but I don't know. So I'm not really telling anybody. Yeah, I think I only told my sister-in-law, Jasmine. I think she's the only person I told... In a lot of ways, also Jasmine was like a gatekeeper for me and like who I would consider like someone whose voice was like going to help shape that next part of my life. So like yeah. if Jasmine was with it, then I was with it. So I think I told her it was still with like jazz. This, this probably not going to be nothing, but I'm going to D.C. Right. And I also at that point, I mean, you were on a journey committed to plant a church a word. That's but right. I also just didn't know what that was going to look like for you. It certainly had never been on my radar to be married to a pastor, to be in a relationship with the pastor, whatever. It's never been on my radar to be a pastor. So that's that's another podcast. <laughs> so we that, that common yeah. thread. So anyway, all of that, we're kind of like looking forward to meeting. And we finally do meet up at a restaurant near where I live in D.C. Yeah. Shut it down. Stayed there for five hours, both crying as we tell each other's, uh, told each other our stories and uh, getting the awkward look from the bartenders as like the, the, the chairs are being piled up around us. Right. Right. And we leave there and I go home. You go to Ease and hang out with yes. him. <laughs> and uh you text me and you say... I shoot another shot. I say, yo, tomorrow night, let's do it again. Yeah. And then I knew you were on your phone and then you didn't respond for like a half hour. How did you know I was on my phone? Because you always have your phone. Now now that I know you, <laughs> you always got your phone. So I knew you had your well, phone. Well, I was actually talking to my mom and she was asking me all about it. Like, how did it go? So I guess I had maybe told her that I was going to be hanging out with you. And she was like, how was it? And I was like, oh, it was cool. Yeah. And uh, she's like, are you guys going to hang out again? I said, I'm not really sure. And then your text message comes through. She was like, okay, okay, got to go, go. Bye, bye, bye. She like got off the phone faster than she ever has. <laughs> Super excited. And uh, I, I really had to think in that moment, okay, if I say yes, let's hang out again. I want to be clear because... 
I could tell that you and I are people, people like extroverts. And I'm like, did we just have a really great conversation? Cause we like to talk and have conversations with people or did we like have something else? And I was like, yeah, okay, let's hang out again. So we hang out the next night for like another six hours. At your place, yeah. Yeah, and we're just talking about all the things. You're telling me about how you're about to move and you're going to be moving in like yes. trash bags. Yes, how I didn't pack <laughs> anything. Horrified. I was moving two days later and I had That was a red flag. I should have. That was a bright red. That was a crimson red flag that you did not heed. <laughs> Told me your strategy that you were going to move apartments in garbage bags and I should Black have known. Black plastic bags. Those are more durable. But oh go my gosh. And... You talked about like what your vision was for starting a church, and it was very aligned kind of with my understanding of what a faith community could be and should be. And uh, I just remember this moment, you were standing in my living room, and I think I was sitting on the couch, and I just had this moment where I kind of got freaked out. Like, almost like what you'd feel if you all of a sudden got dizzy. I was like, what is happening right now? I That's the sauce right there. No, my gosh. (laughs) You weren't saying anything consequential, but I was looking at you and I was like, I really like this man. And I have no idea exactly why. I mean, there's reasons why. There are reasons why. But in that moment, I didn't really know you. And I just felt this like really strong connection and yeah, affection for you. And I was like, whoa. And so anyway, you leave and yeah, I'm like, whoa, God, what in the world? And I, at that point, I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I'm very grateful in that moment because I've just been wowed in that moment. Like, wow, God, you did something that I didn't think was possible. And, uh, I don't know what is going to come of this, but if nothing else, I'm super grateful to be reminded of how you can move and do things beyond kind of what I can hope for or imagine. Mm, that's real. Yeah. And so then you're back in New York because you have court. You've got yes. a, you're still practicing law at this point. I am practicing law. Falling asleep in in courtrooms because we were staying up till three o'clock in the morning on the phone. Uh, being a terrible lawyer, shout out to all my clients who <laughs> <laughs> who didn't get the best counsel during those months. But it was that puppy love stage where we were like talking all day and all night, all the time, going back and forth to DC. And I think I knew pretty early that you were very special, and not that. You have a lot going for you in life. You're smart, you're funny, you're pretty, and all these different things. But it felt very easy. It didn't feel like we were forcing anything, even though I'm sure from the outside it looked like, yo, they out, yeah, they're moving, they're moving pretty quick. Hmm. Right. I mean, it's probably hard for people to imagine. I think it was maybe just a couple weekends after that. My mom was in town. And you happened to be in town to celebrate a friend's birthday. So you got to meet my mom and my godmother and a whole bunch of extended family. Oh, yeah, the whole crew. And then a couple weeks after that, I think I was in New York meeting your parents, your extended family, going to have dinner with Jared and Jasmine, your brother and sister-in-law. Yeah, and and Thanksgiving a couple months like after we met, yeah. Right, right. So we were doing all the things. And I mean, I think we defined the relationship uh, around my birthday. So like yeah, on your six birthday. weeks, 
six weeks after that first meeting. Yeah. And I, I mean, I remember being on a trip with my mom and I bought a dress that I could wear to get married in probably two weeks after that. Like, so eight weeks after we had met in person, yeah, uh, just kind of feeling like, yes, this is it. Yeah. Even like we had conversations not that long after we met when I was like, Hey, so if you were like to marry theoretically, hypothetically, if you were to marry a widower who had a wedding and who loved his first wedding already, would you want like a big production? No shade if you do, but like you'd be cool with like a really scaled down version. Right. And you were like, yeah, oh yeah, definitely. And I was like, all right, great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is fascinating. Yeah. And so then, uh, you know, I think for us, it's, a lot of people ask, well, then when did you guys get engaged? And we didn't really have that kind of traditional, will you marry me moment. No. Uh, you, again, shout out to Dr. Rath. We're seeing her and telling her about me. Yeah. And she was like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Let me see her. I got to put some eyes on her. Make sure she's, she's either, everything you tell me, she's either amazing or she is a sociopath who is like, who got your nose wide open. So I need to see her. And we completed counseling with uh, Dr. Rath. And one of the complexities about our relationship is that in a lot of ways, we talk about love as this commitment, this uh, act of the will. But in a lot of ways, there's different levels of compatibility that make loving the other, in some cases, easier than other scenarios. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Rath commented on how ridiculously compatible we were not just in being widowed that was like the least of our compatibility but just in a lot of ways we saw life and were wired right i think that it's important to say we had these really unique experiences and i think if you had asked either of us before we met each other should you get married to someone in 10 months we no, would have said, said no yes. and i would never do something like that are you kidding me no way uh, but then we met each other and it was kind of one of those things of, oh, when you know, you know, I never thought that I would ever say something like that. Um, and I don't think that you always have to have that mentality going into marriage either. Definitely not. Um, but it is worth saying that because we were kind of caught up in being wowed by each other and feeling very strongly about each other that we did take the time to go through premarital counseling. I mean, we had even both been through premarital counseling with our first spouses. Uh, but Dr. Rath took us through an assessment where we answered like 500 questions separately with the idea that we could kind of come together and see where the gaps were. And it just so happened that after we took that assessment, there were like nine categories and she said, well, either you guys anticipated the other person's answers or you're one of the most compatible couples that have ever come through my doors. So at that point, when she gave us that feedback, we yeah, were like, we just like took out our iPhones and were like, well, what is like April look like? What does May look like? What about June? It was just like, well, what weekend can we do it that my grandmother can come down? Yeah. It was like a calendaring issue. Yeah, it was a calendaring thing. Yeah. Yeah, we were like, let's just. It was the least romantic engagement. <laughs> there was no flash mob. There wasn't a flash mob. No. RIP to the flash mob. Yes. I don't think people do that as much they anymore. Don't. Okay. Uh, yeah, and so then we got married. We did. 
brunch with a twist is what they called it. Yes. What we called it. That's what (laughs) they being us. Yes. yes. (laughs) Brunch with a twist. We had it in a big restaurant in Baltimore. There was no procession. There was no like me hiding. It was us kind of out in the restaurant as people came in, greeting people, people mingling and moving around. And then at one point, kind of like ding, ding, ding. Hey, everybody put down your forks because we're about to get married right here. Yeah, shout out to Mike Kelsey for officiating. That's right. That's right. And uh, and shout out to, we played our video story and the people serving food were like crying. <laughs> <laughs> and it was amazing. Yeah, it was great. Yes, I think people loved it because it was short too. Definitely. I know. <laughs> Best no wedding ever. No long weddings. Yes. Yeah. It was so, yes. <laughs> It was so great and short. Over in two hours. Yes. Right. Go home. So, yes. Okay. So now that's a bit of our love story. Are you ready to get into these questions? Let's do it. Okay. So first, we talked a little bit about it, but in the whole moving forward to get married and dating, all the things, were there any reservations that you had? Like, were there emotions of fear or just hesitation? What made you feel confident, I guess, in moving forward? I'm going to say something that's going to sound super deep, but I have no intention of it sounding deep. I had a lot of fear and reservations before I met you. And once I met you, I had no more fear. Hmm. The apostle would say. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) There's no fear in love. Yeah. So I, not that I loved you then, or I even knew what loving you then would look like, but I didn't have fear at that point. With everybody else, I was afraid if I would be unfair to them by almost like using them to get a, a family, but I wouldn't necessarily like love them well or be excited about them. So yeah. what about you? Yeah, I... I mean, I honestly think I felt fear that it could all go away. Um, And then I had like crazy fears, probably six weeks, like right after we'd made things official, I had, I was having vertigo and I was like, I'm about to die. I was fully convinced. I was like, I just met this amazing man, which I didn't think was possible. And now I have this and I have a brain tumor. I'm (laughs) (laughs) And that's not overly dramatic at all right no not at all not at all anyway um i think i did have some just fear about more so all of it kind of going away yeah i think a lot of the questions kind of hinted at this but most of the fear i have is that the worst case scenario will come true so when i was at the hospital danielle so many times the doctors would tell us like well you know there's like a one in a 10 million percent chance that it's this I wouldn't worry about that. Like you have a better chance of hitting the lotto. Like our infectious disease doctor told us this. So many other doctors told us like, oh, you have a better chance of hitting the lotto on your way out today than you do of it being cancer. So I wouldn't even worry about that. And I remember like Danielle and I would joke like, well, I'm about to just go to, you know, stop up at 7-Eleven or something and get a ticket because like that's a better chance than you having cancer. So when you actually live a life where the worst case scenario happens Mm -hmm. and you are one of the one in 10 people in America who have this life story in a given year, man, it just makes me very nervous all the time that the worst case scenario can and will happen. And that's something I've been working through a lot with my therapist and uh, in prayer with over the late last years, just that that's not a fear about dating. It's a fear about life. Yeah. 
I think we talk about that a lot, you know, when I think there's a lot of people who've never been widowed who shared that this is their worst fear, that their spouse would die suddenly, early, uh, and that it's even been paralyzing for them to enter a relationship because Mm. of this kind of fear. And I think that it's a very real thing that we deal with, uh, even, I think, with our kids. I know I confess to you about just some of the fears I have with the boys because I've lived those moments of just one false step and the whole story changes. Uh, So I'm sure that I look kind of crazy to some people on the playground, but I'm always kind of seeing and visualizing things just going left uh, really quickly. Um, And so I think the biggest thing is being honest and recognizing those feelings, maybe recognizing that they aren't necessarily rational, um, but also at the same time, getting them out your head, getting them out your head. And then really just taking them to, to God in prayer has been the best thing that I can do. Um, and to, to acknowledge that like God is not out to get us, <laughs> um, doesn't have it out for us, you know, like God loves us and just trying to rest in, in that as much as I can. Yeah. So much of my life story and your life story, people have felt like, oh man, like I've been blessed so much by your resilience through suffering. And what that kind of does to me a little bit sometimes is make me feel like, well, God, the best way you want to use me is make my life miserable. Mm-hmm. So I, I live with a constant fear. It's less now than it was a, a decade ago, but a constant fear that, oh, like God is really, he wants to get the glory out of your life, Jordan. He's going to make you like miserable. Mm-hmm. And I know that's theologically not true. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's true for other people. But mm-hmm. for me, I, I really do wrestle with that a lot. Yeah. So that's a fear that I have. Not, not that like, uh, in dating you that, you know, you weren't going to like me or something. Yeah. And I was listening to an interview with a woman who has cancer and she read an excerpt of her book where she kind of was documenting and walking down all of her different thoughts about not being there for her husband when she dies, not being there for her kids. And where she lands it is, but I'm here today, Mm. you know? And I think that that is also a comfort that I take when I feel those things. I'm like, but you're here right now today and the kids are here and safe right now and here today and try to be as present as possible because sometimes kind of trying to guard ourselves against the worst case scenarios is just exhausting and chasing after the wind. Yeah. And fear is so paralyzing and it just robs you from actually being present in any given day. And it makes it impossible to like enjoy a day at the playground, a day getting donuts, it, anything, because you're always imagining what could go wrong. And what ends up happening is you actually miss out on the moments that are right in front of you. So that's really good. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people ask us about, does the pain of losing a spouse dissipate? Hmm. Uh, does it change your relationship or your level of trust with God. Mm, that's real. I would say pain dissipates for sure in the loss of a spouse, the loss of anything. If you properly grieve anything, grief is the mechanism by which your body 
recovers and heals. And it is very difficult to go through grief, but to grieve well, to not stuff things down, to not mask it or try to drown it in alcohol or mask it with something else. To do that, grief is a really healing process. It's, it's what God has given us to, to heal from loss and pain and the brokenness of this world. So I think the, the pain of losing Danielle lessened and then the journey of trusting God has been a decade long process. And I, I imagine that it will be preferably the next six decades of my life still wrestling with that. But I still struggle with the fear that God is going to yank the rug from under my feet. So like there was this one period where Danielle was, she was doing terribly and then she starts taking chemotherapy. And I remember the doctors just being like, they were just, they couldn't believe how well she was doing and she was in remission. And Columbia is a teaching hospital and they would have so many doctors that would like rotate their medical students in and out to see this miracle patient who was on death's door and now was in remission. And I was like, so happy. I've never been happier in my life. And to have it all come crashing down really did mess with me. And it really, it just didn't feel fair. And there's different parts of the story that made it feel like it was just unnecessary. Mm. So like one part of the story that I don't tell too often is uh, we pull up to the hospital the morning, Danielle passed away the morning she died and she stopped breathing and she stopped breathing as soon as we pulled up in front of the ER. And I've always wondered like, God, if it would have been five more minutes, just five minutes, if we left the house five minutes earlier, if she just breathed for five minutes or more, I would have never had to witness the worst things I've ever seen in my life of like me carrying her into the ER, like a crazy person screaming, watching them do all that stuff, you know, to try to revive her. And that's, that definitely played with my, that was a huge challenge to my faith is like, God, that's just, that's just mean. That's just cruel. Like I already did everything I could. I tried to love her. I tried to pray. We set calendar reminders. We fasted. We asked people to pray. And it's one thing if you didn't heal her, but like to make it go down like that. And when people feel like God has turned their back on them, I'm like, I get it. I feel you. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's probably been a bigger wrestle in terms of trusting God of like, it just felt so arbitrary. Mm. Now, 10 years later, I've had a renewed sense of who I know God to be. And it's not the God who won't let terrible things happen. Mm. Nor is it the God that wants you to have terrible things mm -hmm. to happen or needs terrible things to happen. Mm. So it's been a whole journey. That's so good. Yeah, I mean I think the I think the pain of losing the person does dissipate. The interesting thing though is sometimes the pain of the pain is what gets me. Like mm. sometimes just thinking about mm. how much it hurts will bring me to tears. Yeah. Um thinking about myself crying on the bathroom floor, you know what I mean? Uh thinking about how numb I was in that moment can can make me sad. Um and sometimes just thinking about uh, Jerron not really knowing those were his last moments of life and me not being there with him. Yeah, and why, a lot. why God wouldn't allow me even a final goodbye. Uh, so I think there's pain for sure in 
in missing the person. Uh, but I, I do think, I mean, connected to this question is probably what about like the love and affection for the person? I think maybe people wonder about that. And we definitely love Danielle and love Jerron, but you know, it's not the same as when they were alive 10 and 12 years ago. No, of course not. Um, so it's a, I don't know. It's, it's the love has shifted for sure just because of the time that has passed between when we were in relationship with them, but there's still this deep admiration. There's still this deep um, appreciation for who we are as a result of who they were. Um, And so I, I think that will remain with us forever. Yeah. And a protection, like whenever people interview me for stuff, I don't really care how I'm always presented, but I'm very, very, very careful of how people would present Danielle. Mm-hmm. And I would guard that like a pit bull. Uh, so I think, yeah, that's that's a good way of saying it. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right, let's get back. To, let's get to some lighter stuff. Okay, yes. I know. I want to get through some of these questions. Let's talk about dating. Let's talk about Let us marriage. Do that. But I do think it was great that we got to get into some of that stuff too. Definitely. Uh, because... I think a lot of people haven't necessarily heard all that from us. So thank you for sharing. Okay. So I'm going to just move through these questions, Jo. Let's, Let's do, it. do it. Okay. What are things a single person should be doing to prepare for their future life partner? Hmm. That's a good question. I think so many people, whether they say it or not, like have lost hope that God could blow their minds and that they could really truly be fulfilled in walking on mission with a person who loves Jesus and loves them. And so because of that, I feel like it's hard for them to stay single, like really single, like not, not attached to someone who they know is not a good fit for them long-term. So my biggest recommendation would be that in your singleness to try with all your might to not waste your time on people that, you know, you have no business dating or being with and truly in hope, just hope that God is able to actually do something that could blow your mind. Yeah, man. I think that single people should definitely spend time. We've talked a lot about this in this sermon series, doing the emotional work to know themselves well. Amen. Uh, You know, I think there's so much beneath the surface that we don't reckon with, that we don't feel fully, that we shove down. And I think, I said this on one of the earlier episodes that a lot of times, even as we are, if the person is dating, they're looking at all those people trying to figure out, is this what I want? Is that what I want? And they would have such greater clarity if they were very clear about who they are, what they feel, uh, if they know themselves, you know, but knowing yourself, I think takes spending time with yourself. Uh, so I think that's one thing that people, it's not to be like a hermit, Yeah. And doing the hard emotional work of actually knowing what's going on in your inner world. Yeah. Yeah. That's real. I think it's also good to like practice good emotional health in your friendships and with the family members and people that you have. Yeah. It's not a light switch you're going to flick on one day. Right. If you don't know how to do conflict resolution now, you're not going to know how to do it. Right. If you don't know how to have that difficult conversation with your family member or your friend uh, when they disappoint you or whatever, then it's going to be equally hard, if not harder in a marriage. Yeah. Okay, cool. 
What dating decisions did you make that best supported your success as a married couple? What dating decisions did we make that best supported our success as a married couple? That's a good question. (laughs) It is a good question. I feel like we did a lot of things that were helpful for us. I don't know. I think the values assessment and therapy sessions definitely contributed to our success uh, because some of those things, even categorizing, oh, values around money, values around how we spend our time. I can still remember that assessment that we took and the different areas that we were asked about. And, you know, oftentimes two people come into a marriage and they even think we should be spending all of our time together. And someone else is thinking we should be spending very little time together. And so I feel like that values assessment was really helpful in that dating stage. Yeah. And I think getting a good definition of what marriage was, and we had some premarital counseling stuff before, but having a really clear definition of what marriage truly was about and the purpose of it, that it wasn't for Jordan's self-fulfillment. And once I realized that, I think I realized that more powerfully in our dating than I did when I was dating Danielle. I just didn't know. I kind of viewed marriage then as like, oh, this is a path to my fulfillment. And when I viewed it like that, it really robbed the power of it. So having some counseling before we got married and really reading some books and stuff like that was really helpful to clarify that for me. Yeah. I also think that when we realized that we were serious about each other, which was very early on for us, we spent a lot of time with each other's friends. Oh, yeah. I mean, with each other's families. So we were very good at, if I was coming to New York to visit from D.C., we had a whole agenda of different people for me to meet. Like, I want you to meet this childhood friend. I want you to meet this person. I want you kind of meeting the people around me. Uh, And we were very intentional about that, too. Yeah. What would you say to the person who has had a lot of bad dates, is waiting to meet somebody? What would you say in terms of helping them stay encouraged to find the right person? Mm. I don't have a really, really good answer to this other than just I want to acknowledge the weight of unmet expectations and how painful that could be. And the most thing I could say, the best thing I can say in terms of advice is that you should never bear that alone. And mm-hmm. you definitely need friends to help you carry that, to truly divide your sorrows and to multiply your, jo- your joys. And if you're carrying that by yourself, it's going to be too heavy. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I think this, I agree, it's so hard because the ambiguity of it all and not knowing if someone might show up in six months or six years from now, like I, I, or ever, I mean, I vividly remember feeling that uh, when I was widowed and I, and I can imagine some people might be like, Oh, but you were in your twenties. Like, of course you had a whole future, but (laughs) one of the funny things, not ha ha funny, but the difference between widows and widowers, widowers get treated like really nicely. Mm -hmm. Like, Oh, he's a guy that is like faithful and will like stick by a woman. And people are dropping off food. Yes. Oh yeah. Men treat widows like shorty is, she must be weird. Like, or she's probably a little bit crazy or I don't want to live in this dude's shadow. So yeah, it wasn't like I think people the last beating, thing you just said is ding, I don't wanna, ding, ding. Yes. Be beaten down your door. Yeah. Nobody, I think dudes didn't want to live in the shadow 
of my late husband. Yeah. And so when and it would come like up in conversation, it's and... like I could see their eyeballs darting back and forth. <laughs> like, I think I can make it to the exit in like seven good paces. Yes. If I just keep my head yes. down. You got a busy day at work tomorrow morning. Let me head out. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, in terms of staying encouraged, I, I, I will say that I had no idea that I was going to meet you in August 2012. And my whole life got turned upside down. And all that to say, like, you just never know how close or far something good is, you know, and we generally are just one yes away from things changing, like one yes away from the new job, one yes away from the new relationship, whatever it may be. Um, and we know so many people at Renaissance that were one day single and the next day, I'm like, yo, who was due with yeah. so-and-so? And like, that's our new boo. Like, yeah. And you meet him like, oh, he's a legit dude. Yeah. And it was like, oh, I didn't have, I didn't even have him on my radar. And then now here we are. Yeah. So I guess the encouragement is to stay open because I think the the thing about it all is that we place limits on God and we place limits and we put timelines for when things need to happen, right? And most of us, I think, especially young women often grew up with this idea that I'm going to finish school and then maybe I'll get a college degree and then I'll spend a couple of years on my career and then I'll meet the person we'll date for two years we'll be engaged for one year all of this will happen before I'm 30 so that I can have my first child and like there's a whole you know continuum that we have internalized many of us and when all of that is not happening we often start to panic and I feel like you know we've lived we've observed that relationships happen in all kinds of different ways timelines get blown up all the time. Uh, people get married later in life sooner than they thought, you know, all the different things. And so just kind of not trying to impose timelines on God. It's hard though. Yeah. Let's just say that hard. it's hard. It's hard. Okay. Uh, what did you prioritize in dating that just doesn't matter now? That's a really good question. It is. I wouldn't say it doesn't matter now. It doesn't matter as much. In dating, I f was very concerned with how I was presenting myself to you. Hmm. And now it is what it is, Shorty Rock. <laughs> I mean, now I say that in jest a little bit, but it is, I'm, I'm, I'm less concerned with how I present myself. Now I'm more concerned with who I am. Hmm. So before I wanted to be, I wanted to, I did want to listen to you, but I also wanted you to think I was a good listener. Hmm. And now I just, I want to listen well to people. Mm. I want to, yeah, I don't want to be perceived as a good listener. I want to actually listen well. I don't want there to be, I want there to be integration in my life that I'm actually doing the things that I'm being perceived as. That's so good. I don't know what I prioritize in dating that doesn't matter now. You didn't prioritize responding quickly to texts. <laughs> And you still don't. And I still don't. There we go. That's funny. Uh, what would you, what advice would you give your unmarried self? Um, unmarried or my widowed self, probably different advice. Hmm. 
So this is, you mean pre-Danielle self or your widowed self? Which one are you? Uh, first, I'll say my pre-Danielle stuff, self, I was young. I don't even know. I would just say, you're stupid. You're young. <laughs> go <laughs> go have some chicken wings and watch the Knicks lose. You, you know, keep going. Uh, my widowed self, I would say, you know, people can live 40 days without food, two days without water, but not one second without hope. Don't ever lose hope. Wow. Don't ever lose hope in God. Mm-hmm. Uh, advice I give my unmarried self would be to enjoy moments where I could pick up and do exactly what I wanted to do. Oof. Uh, Just leave. I like you a lot, Jordan, and I like doing a lot of things with you. Uh, but it is sometimes hard that, you know, especially even we have children on top of that, but just the coordination uh, that's required to make sure that we're good and that we stay on the same page. I do not have the freedom to kind of pick up and go. So certainly for the single friends that we have, I'm always encouraging them to like, it's a Wednesday night and you want to just like get up and go, get up and go, (laughs) you know. It's not like to engage in all kinds of crazy behavior, but just like, you know, to want to get up and go to some concert at 11 p.m., particularly in New York City, all the things that are going on. Yeah, I would say, like, just do the things. So, yeah. How do you think people dating should go about identifying the difference between red flags and human imperfections? Mm. That's a really good question. Everybody has imperfections, um, be it sins, wounds, weaknesses, or damages um, that will be revealed over time. The longer you spend with somebody, you'll realize like, oh, this person really has like weaknesses in this area or they're like been wounded by their parents or by a previous relationship. So those are not something to be alarmed about. And to the perfectionists out there waiting for someone to not have any imperfections, um, you're going to be a very lonely person for a very long time if that's what you're waiting for, the perfect person. Red flags to me are dishonesty. Hmm. Not just dishonesty with me, but dishonesty with yourself. And because you can't be in a relationship with a liar. It's impossible to be in a relationship with a liar. And if someone is unwilling to reconcile with things within themselves, even like unintentionally, then that's just a big red flag. And to my sisters out there, red flags, a couple that I can think about, guys who I would be really sad if you brought this dude to church. A guy that won't introduce you to people that he's really close to after, you know, not saying week one, but after a certain period of time, if he's still unwilling to introduce to his family and stuff like that, that's just a huge red flag. Mm-hmm. And to his close friends, he's he's in the, he's doing a double life at that point, in my opinion. Um, a red flag is someone who turns on Jesus just because if he hears you go to church and he want to turn he or she wants to turn on Jesus at, at that point and be like something that they're they haven't been not saying that they're not now curious or open. Yeah, there's a difference between the person who's maybe saying, Oh, you're into this. Yeah, I'll go along and check yeah, that's that great. out with you. That's different. We but... hear that a lot. I mean some of that sometimes is really great. People yeah. really turn out to have meaningful encounters with Jesus. But yeah, someone who just like is faking the funk just for your attention. A couple I can think about right now. Yeah. I would also say just how people show respect 
to or disrespect to mm. the people around them. I tend to think that that is a red flag, like how the person treats the service person, how the person talks to their parents, um, those kinds of things. Cause I think the intimacy of a marriage, like it being your closest relationship, that's where you're probably going to talk the absolute craziest. And so if you hear a person talking super crazy and disrespectfully to people around them, to me, I think that's just a red flag for, well, as I get closer and closer to this person, how are they going to talk to me? Um, I think the other red flag I'd say is if you try to offer up honesty and vulnerability mm. and the person does not handle that well, yeah. like they really kind of trample on you or... uh or just have no interest, it seems, in changing or or just like talking through that. I feel like that's really hard. Yeah. And and that will continue to kind of fester. Fester and yeah. repeat itself in a relationship. Um And that's some of the most painful conversations that couples I know have, married couples, when one person really, really wants to have a conversation. And it's a form of abuse to not engage with someone when they really give you when they really want to have a conversation or they really are bothered by something and they're really vulnerable about something and the other person just either disregards it, sweeps it under the rug, says, I'll talk, we'll talk about it later or tramples on it more aggressively. That's like a really painful thing. And that's something that I would be very, I would keep my eyes wide open about that in dating relationships. Yeah. Cause that's, that's something that a person needs to grow in individually. It has nothing to do with you. That's something that that person needs individual growth, counseling, therapy, whatever the process is to, to be able to handle their emotions. Because most of the time that person has no handle on their own emotions. So you're trying to, it's like giving them a Ferrari. It's like giving them a, a race car, a Formula One race car and telling them to drive it around the track. Like they can't handle that because they can't handle their own emotions. So since they can't handle their own emotions, you're trying to give them yours. They're like, I. it's like a hot potato. They don't even know what to do with it. So they'll find some way to get rid of it as quickly as possible. And again, there's a lot of people who I know and really for a variety of stages of marriages where that's happening and that's something that they're working through mm -hmm. and it's not impossible to overcome. And I've seen right. a lot of growth happen in that. But in dating, I, that's something that I would be very cautious about moving forward with unless a person could do that. Yeah, because I think the thing is I've seen people withholding honest conversations, yep. like honest hurt. Because they don't want to mess up the relationship. Yep. Get along to go along. Yeah. Get along to go along. And the whole thing is like, do I, do you really want to pursue that kind of dating relationship? Do you really want to see that through to marriage where your feelings are hurt and you don't feel like you can say that without it kind of blowing the whole thing up? Like, if we can't be vulnerable with each other, like if I can't trust that. I might even just get a simple, oh, I can see where you're coming from. You don't have to agree with me. But if I can't even get to that point, it just feels like we're we're going to be stunted in our growth Big and time. intimacy. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now what about advice on physical boundaries in Christian dating relationships? Yes, Lord. We're going to get to it. Let's get to it. <laughs> Physical boundaries. There's been like a lot about like purity culture and people have all these different expectations and stuff that they grew up with growing up. Physical boundaries, 
boundaries are for your good. Like if you're driving on the highway and they have those boundaries on the side of the bridge, they're to keep you from going off the bridge. Mm-hmm. And like, so I first want to think about boundaries as being like a really good and helpful thing. But just being perfectly honest in our own relationship, we got married in 10 months, partly because we felt we were compatible and also partly because we were like, I see the end of the road and I got to get there. And um, <laughs> to keep it holy, you mean? Keep it holy. Keep sexually. it holy. <laughs> yes. Because I did know at that point I was going to plant a church and I really did not want to be, I wanted to be able to hold on to a testimony that said I honored God with my body to the fullest capacity that I was able to do. And I think God can redeem anything. But one thing that was necessary for one thing that I really felt passionate about was wanting for us to walk through that. But we really did struggle in a lot of ways. It wasn't an easy road. It was crazy that one night I would always tell my friends. So I would always tell my friends like when Jessica was coming in town or when I was going to D.C., to hold me accountable. And I have some really great brothers who held me down for accountability. But I think, I mean, like boundaries are like, they're very easy. You know what you're not supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. You know what you're not supposed to be doing. If mm-hmm. you have to ask it, the answer is no, you shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, so um, there was some, t- there was a one time we were at the house at my apartment on 121st street and it was one o'clock, you know what I'm saying? In the morning we went out for dinner, had a glass of wine. It was a good time. And, Boundaries were being crossed that should not have been crossed. Not the boundary, Mm -hmm. but, you know, the preliminary boundaries before we drove off the bridge were being were being crossed. And then somebody rang the doorbell, some random figure. I don't know if it was a man or a woman, like at one o'clock in the morning, just ran the doorbell and I ran to the window to see who it was. And they just like ran down the street. They just ran away. And I like still get like chills thinking about how wild that was. But I was like, yo, that was an angel. That was the Holy Ghost <laughs> inspiring that stranger who had a Popeye's bag in his hand yeah. to stop us. Everybody straightened up right there. Oh, straightened all the way up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Straight up. <laughs> so, okay, right. It's definitely not easy, but I think it's important to say that we had a conversation from jump yes. that that was what we wanted for our relationship to abstain until marriage. Yeah. You set boundaries in the light that you can maintain in the dark. Yeah. You don't set the boundaries at two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So and I, it's yeah. not necessarily like the conversation that people have to lead with on their first date. But I do think if you want to succeed in this area, I do think you have to be clear with the person you're in a relationship with. Yeah. And you need like, what is the actual accountability structure structure you have in practice? Mm-hmm. So like if you're in a DNA group, your DNA group needs to know exactly what's going on. And you need to give people a hunting license to ask you those questions. So I had friends who I was like, yo, you got the hunting license. Just ask. They knew they had permission to ask me those questions. And I knew they were going to ask me those questions. Mm -hmm. So whenever you would come in town, I knew exactly Monday morning, one of my annoying friends was going to call me and be like, yo, how was this weekend? Because I told him to ask me. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's, it's not just a boundary to keep you from like physically doing something, but it's also like, what is the, your community looking like? Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think that's a huge boundary to have in place. Yeah. Really good. Uh, okay. And then somebody asked, where are all these single great men Jordan keeps referring to? Yo, they in the building, man. (laughs) They are in the building. The funny thing is people are asking me 
like as if what you say is something that comes out of my mouth and I'm like, well, I don't know exactly. But then listen, I got you some receipts. Back me up. J-O, Back okay? me up. Because I was like, well, maybe there is some truth to this. I got to go. I got to go to the records. I'm a data person. And so I went and looked at all the men who are in DNA groups right now. And there's like a little over 100 men in DNA groups. How many would you guess are single? 25. More than 50, almost 55. Wow. Look at that. And that's just the DNA groups. That is true. That probably makes up like, like half wow. of our church. I doubted Jordan and so now did look. some of my single sisters. Now look at that. But we need to find these single beds. Apparently. I know where they're at. <laughs> you know where they are. They serve in Renaissance kids. So if you want to meet, <laughs> you got to come serve Renaissance kids and do setup. That is hilarious. Please don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Let's talk about marriage. Let's do it. Okay, let's talk about like the nitty gritty day to day stuff. Because so many times on Instagram, we get the highlight reel, we get the photos of the trips, we get the pictures sometimes of our kids smiling and whatever it might look all dandy. Uh, But like, how is that nitty gritty things that we have to learn to accept about each other and work on the things we don't like about each other? What does that look like? Over the last nine years, I've had to let go of the Jessica I made up in my mind and love the Jessica who I'm married to. Mm. And the Jessica who I'm married to is a woman with just because just like everybody else, she has real sin in her life, not anything egregious. Mm -hmm. You will always miss the mark and you have weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And to know who you are, to learn your story over the last couple of years, I've been like, oh, wow, like that weakness makes a lot of sense. And it's not my story to tell, but one of these days you you can tell it just in general to learn who you are and your weaknesses. I'm like, wow, like Jessica, she does this because of this. And mm-hmm. it's not something that she's always choosing to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I know I have weaknesses and I have different things that you have to, you know, fight through. So, but that's what love is like. Love is not, love is not Instagram. Love is not the trip to California. Love is I'd see Jessica, she has weaknesses, she does not deserve this, and I've committed to love her, and I'm going to do the thing and trust that my feelings are going to catch up. So that has been the mantra for my life for the last eight years is, I'm going to move with an action of love, and I'm going to trust that my emotions will catch up, and 100% of the time, my emotions have caught up, but I do not rely on my feelings to dictate my day-to-day interaction with you. I don't do it every single day. There's definitely some days where I'm like, I'm not doing that and I don't do it. Mm-hmm. And there's days where I'm like, yo, J.O., you have to love her. That's the commitment I made. And I move from that commitment and I just trust that my emotions are going to catch up. So I recognize your weaknesses. I think that gives me a lot of empathy for you instead of resentment. And then, yeah. What about you? Yeah, I think... I think this is such a great question because it is true that you have these moments and we talk about this a lot, like feelings come, they go, they come back again. And that can be the positive ones. That can be the negative ones too. Like I can look up and be like, oh my gosh, he gets on my nerves or whatever. Uh, And then the next moment I might feel different and I might be back again. I think that um, one of the best things that helps with all of that, I think, is 
some of the rhythms that we have set up in our relationship oh, yeah, really help. Um, so because the nitty gritty, as I think of it, it's like the pressures and stress of things are breaking in the apartment. The kids are screaming like the child is doing something that doesn't make sense. The emails the are going off. Yes. Slack is going off. You know, the phone is ringing. The house is dirty. The house is dirty. There's reggaeton blasting <laughs> from the street. You know, like there's a lot of things happening. And that also, like you're kind of in this pressure cooker and there's outside pressures. And then the person makes a decision, your spouse makes a decision in a way that you would not do it that way. Like, why would you do that? You know, I, we're just different people um, who make different decisions and think differently and move differently sometimes. Uh, but I think that some of the rhythms we have set up really help uh, hold those moments in proper light. So one that with all of the things we have to manage, uh, that we try to set times specifically to talk about those things, <laughs> like in the height of our stress, which was probably when our youngest son was about six months old. Mm. There was not much sleep being had. There was a lot of work that you had on your plate. We were kind of like breaking down. You're exhausted. You were having migraines, vertigo, all the things. And you'd come home and I'm like, well, we have to talk about this and we have to figure out this and we need to get our health insurance and pay this tax bill. Right, exactly. And, uh, deciding that what we really needed was a family meeting to kind of address all of those things, which would then free up more moments to simply enjoy one another. Yes. Cause you would come to bed at 11, 28 and be like, what do you think we're going to do about this IRS bill? And I'm like, yo, I just was able to calm down. I do not have the energy for that. The family meeting has been amazing. Yeah. Cause now, I mean, we do it like a real meeting at WeWork, go to the whiteboard we put everything that we need to talk about there and we spend hours sometimes unloading everything in that one meeting and we know we're going to talk about it and we have our plan and that way that night for dinner we can eat dinner yeah and say how are you doing yeah when it's like bleeding into every yeah, interaction man. it just it takes away and robs from some of the yes. the fun that those moments could have and then we also try to have like weekly kind of time together to really ask each other questions. How are you doing? What's going on? Yeah. What's your high? What's your low? What's the Lord been teaching you? What are your hopes for the future? And I think that that helps uh, kind of dim the drudgery of the nitty gritty moments as well. Okay. In what ways have you become more like each other? And in what ways have you had to prioritize and keep your individuality in marriage? That's a good question. Yeah. You know, I think we kind of have a joke with each other about we can like different things because sometimes we do kind of default into expecting the other person to have the same preference that we have or like the same thing. And then we kind of just make a joke reminding each other, like, we can like different things. It's fine. Um, Yeah. Like the, the night of my fantasy basketball draft, I've never been happier. Maybe when my kids were born, but beyond that, I love it. I like love the experience of the draft, eating chicken wings with my friends, talking about players. And you come around the corner, you're like, why is this dude so happy? He is like cheesing right now. And I'm a simple guy. I like to go eat chicken wings and watch the NBA. And I don't care if anybody else likes that. 
Yeah. I, I mean, I think one way that I would say that I've become more like you is in trying to get more in touch with my emotions and to have more, to lead more with vulnerability. I feel like you've led with vulnerability in our relationship and that's opened up space for me to try to do the same in the times that I need to. So I would say that's probably one of the biggest things that I've learned from yeah. you or how I've become more like you. I've become more like you and wanting to do more experiences and to like enjoy outdoors and enjoy different activities where before I would do it just because I knew it would make you happy. Now I'm like, Oh, that would be cool. And I actually look forward to it. Yeah. But I think we try to be individual. Like we try to have our own solo days away to do exactly what we want. Like your day away looks like binging some TV show and eating Sour Patch Kids. Yes. All day long. Mine probably looks like gallivanting around the city, eating good food, some random like ice cream flavor from some shop in the East Village or whatever. Uh, and we try to respect that and let each other lean into that too. Yeah. At the end of the day, I mean, I've sp- I spent 30 years, 30 of the 40 years of my life not knowing who in the world Jessica that Moreland, Jessica Alicia Moreland was Jessica Jackson, Jessica Rice. I've had uh, many names. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, I'm an individual and I think it's uh, necessary to maintain who you are and not to lose that or even cower under the expectation. Because a lot of times what happens in relationships are people just expect that, well, of course, since we're married, we have to be best friends. And like, where does it say that? That you have to like all the same things? That's miserable to put that expectation on somebody. You don't have to like all the same things. You have to be committed to each other. You have to be deeply connected. You have to develop and nurture the intimacy in your relationship. And you can do that without liking 99% of the same activities and fun things to do. And you will do more things in common in the pursuit of intimacy and connection with with the other person and appreciating what the person has done to cross that bridge to come over to you in that process. But um, I think this whole concept of like being best friends and being, you know, so similar is, is very overblown and sometimes like really unhelpful. Mm-hmm. That's good. A lot of people ask what it's like loving someone who is widowed and like, do we relate to each other better because of our experiences? Are we ranking, I guess, our former spouse against our current spouse? That's hilarious. It's so funny because like, this is probably the question we get the most. And it's really hard to explain how I could hear you talk about how Jerron was your dream man and to not feel threatened at all by that. And it's something that I don't know that we can adequately explain, but under no circumstance, I've never felt threatened by Jerron. Mm-hmm. I've never th- felt threatened on his anniversary, the anniversary of your wedding, an anniversary of his death, his birthday, uh, to want to, for you to downplay that. Because in a lot of ways, it's like, yeah, what kind of person would Jessica be if her best friend died and she just kept it pushing? Like, oh, oh well on to the next like that's really messed up like wouldn't you want a person who was deeply formed by that and still felt deep love for that person i would 
Mm-hmm. It just in a vacuum, I would definitely want that. And also the ability for her to for to trust that her heart can expand and that she can love me deeply. And so I, I think that's a big thing of trusting that your heart has expanded, not to like evict, you know, sweep Jerron out, but to say like, oh, Jessica loves me because our hearts have an ever, abil- ever expanding ability to uh, expand. Yeah. I think we tend to live in a this or that kind of world, yep. right? And uh, I think what you said is so true. The best thing I can liken to is when a parent has one child and then a second child is born or a third is born, like we don't say, so you must love that first one. And then you gave the leftovers to that second and third child, like a parent's heart expands mm. to love all of their children. And I think we we underestimate the heart's ability to expand, like there's more love to be given. It's not like, whoop, I, I poured it all out in this place and there's nothing left to give to you. Uh, but I mean, obviously, I think you experiencing the same kind of devotion, love, passion for your first spouse helps with knowing that I can have loved Jerron and love you. I mean, you're kind of experiencing it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so I'm, that helps as well. There was that one day on Danielle's birthday, it was snowing outside mm-hmm. and we went to the cemetery and I went to the cemetery by myself. I went to, we went to the cemetery together and you were staying in the car. It was when we were dating before we, were, we got married. Yeah, before we got, before we got married and you were just going to remain in the car as I went out and just spend however much time, however long I wanted to out there. But it was like snowing really bad and it was like the, the wind was picking up. So I like couldn't find, I couldn't find a grave. And I was like, so, so, so bothered. And I just was like, so bothered. And you came out and you just sat with me as I cried. I don't even know if I found a grave yet or maybe helped me find it. I don't know what it was, but yeah, it wasn't like you were like, hey, this boy go crying over his dead wife. You know what I mean? But it was like, it felt like you understood where I was in life and that that didn't threaten how I, how truly excited I was. I mean, because that was probably, you know, the day before New Year's. I don't know if we had New Year's plans that year. But yeah, I mean, we would like be having fun the next night together or that probably that day. We, I'm sure we went out and had a great time to, together. But yeah, it's, it just it didn't threaten the other. Yeah, I think it's like a very good example of kind of the tension that we often find ourselves in in life that joy and pain coexist with each other. Like, isn't that all of life? And so I think... Our relationship has modeled that in lots of ways too. Yeah, to keep it all the way alive though, one of the it was easy for me to join in your story about Jerron and less easy for other guys that you dated. And I think a big piece of that was I didn't see I knew how much the person who I loved in Jessica was because of Jerron. Like you were who you were because of your life in totality and of ex- its experiences. What was less easy for me and something that I've embraced over time is all of the relationships that Jessica has had have formed her, the good, the bad, and the ugly, mm-hmm. the decisions that she would make again and the decisions she wouldn't make again. Mm-hmm. They've all, they've all brought her to this place that I've met her and I fell in love with her and embracing all of those experiences in her life has been super helpful for me to even know who you were and also for us to connect to each other, to ask you questions and, you know, two, th- two rules, never ask a question you don't want to know the answer to, but to ask you real questions, uh, to learn who you are without judgment 
And I think that's actually been something in the last four or five years that's been like massively helpful Yeah. to get to know who you are yeah. and your motivations. And like, what was that? What was I like to ask a non-judgmental question of you? So that is something that did not come as easily as about Jerron, but yeah. it was also, it's equally in some ways equally helpful. That's so good. That's so good. Uh, are there any lessons you think we've learned about marriage or relationships in general, each other during the pandemic? Oof. Life in a pandemic. Do not recommend <laughs> one out of 10. <laughs> I think the pandemic was a great accelerator or an accelerant. So for everything, the pandemic just poured gasoline on it. So if there was like passion, then the pandemic poured poured like gasoline on that passion and it erupted. If it was like strife, a crack, lack of like sympathy and empathy, then the pandemic and all the pressure just put that on that. It just really, so I, I think actually that a lot of relationships, friendships, parents, and certainly spousal marriages, they're experiencing the stressors of what the pandemic has done. And I don't know that next year, this time, they'll be feeling those same stressors. So in a lot of ways, I think what people are experiencing right now was so intense that it will be unhelpful to judge your relationship by the pandemic standards because you've never lived through anything like this and preferably will never live through anything like this ever again. So I would wait for people to make major decisions or to put the nail in the coffin or to think that everything is amazing because we just lived through the pandemic and we should take it one day at a time. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm even going to add to that. I thought that was great. <laughs> uh, what do we do to stay connected as we both grow and change? I think that our weekly check-ins help a lot with that. Uh, just to kind of hear what is going on in your world, in your heart. And by weekly check-in, you mean a time where we get away for a couple of hours and we have an un uninterrupted, unhurried, no phones time of check-in. Yes. Thank you. Yes. It's generally our Sabbath time. Our kids are in school. We get some time. We're done with work and our Slack notifications are turned off <laughs> and we just hear from each other and ask each other questions about what's going on with the other person. And I think that that definitely helps um, because it's in those moments that even we start dreaming together about, oh, well, maybe we could take this trip next year. Or you know what I've really been thinking based on this conversation I had with my brother, I would love to do this. Or like, I'm really sad about this thing. Or I'm really mad about this thing. Or yeah. I'm really happy about this thing. Yeah. 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 So I think that things are happening in each of our lives uh, we are probably a bit unique in that we work at the same place. So there's a lot of overlap there. Yes. I work for you. You're my boss. Whatever. <laughs> the other day, Jameson was like, so daddy pays you. I'm like, no, <laughs> no, he does that. Get out of here. Um, anyway. Uh, so yeah, I think that that's a big piece of it is just connecting and being honest with each other. Um, even as that growth and, and change is happening. Uh, kind of along the same lines, how do we deal with like the dynamics of marriage and how love morphs? Hmm. So, you know, this person says, right now I'm more in love with my spouse than hmm. I ever have been, but there's been times when I resented my spouse. 
I don't think love morphs. I think our affections morph. Mm. I think every single day we have to wake up with the commitment to love the other. Mm-hmm. And that is very difficult. Some seasons it's very easy when you're just, you know, overflowing with affection and romance and passion. And, you know, there's not a stack of bills threatening you, health concerns. And other times it's a really very difficult choice. So I don't want to minimize the choice. But love is always a choice that you make. And sometimes it'll be easier to make it than others. But trust that. If you keep making that choice, those affection, that affection will follow. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah. I often think of it as, you know, the goal in marriage, the design of marriage is oneness. And so a lot of times in moments where I might feel resent, where I might be angry about something, where I might, whatever, be bothered. I, I really remember the concept of oneness. And I ask myself, the action that I want to take right now, does that, put me closer to oneness or further away from oneness with Jordan. Like I evaluate the actions and yeah, the actions that I want to take through that lens and filter will saying this thing, take me towards oneness or will giving Jordan the cold shoulder, take me toward oneness with him or will it take me away from oneness with him? And that has been helpful for me because most of the time (laughs) the answer is no, it's not going to put you toward oneness. Mm. You need to collect yourself. You need to process your emotions and you need to have a big girl conversation about how you feel, how you were hurt, how you uh, were disappointed, whatever it might be. Uh, And so I think that a lot is, is, a lot of the conflict too is preventable when we really get in touch with what we're feeling and own those feelings and have those tough conversations. Yeah. Resent is such a big thing. And I was thinking about it earlier, like resent in so many ways is unheard frustration. And not everybody has a spouse or partner that is a safe place for those frustrations. Either they brush them away or they're unwilling to hear them, or they turn them around on you and weaponize them. And my best tool to stay away from resent is to say what exactly what I'm feeling and to hope and pray that you actually receive it well and you don't get defensive or uh, explain it away with logic. Uh, and I, I was thinking about it just now, like, well, what would I do if you were not a safe person to talk to my resent with? I think I would definitely talk to my therapist about it. And I'll talk to good close friends. Not everybody can can hold that. Uh, I would definitely talk to Aswan about it. Like, yo, I'm really feeling like I'm resenting her for this. And actually, I have done that before, mm-hmm. where we've gone out to Tav and we're watching the game, and I'm like, bro, I'm tight right now. Mm-hmm. And not every time I wasn't always emotionally ready to share it with you because I was like, if I sh- if I say this, I'm gonna spaz out. Mm-hmm. So to even have a person to share that with a friend, a close friend that you can just trust to say, I'm going to share this with that truly takes the power away from resent because now your frustration has been heard. Mm. And now it's still a frustration, Mm -hmm. but now we can do something with that. Ideally we could take it to a person who can, who can handle it with care, who can say sorry, who can incorporate that into life change. But until we could do that, we need to make sure those unheard frustrations become heard. That's really good. When it comes to conflict, hard conversations, do you think it's ever good to step away 
from a conversation during conflict. Yes. I I don't know who it was. I was like, you got to just stay. No, don't stay in it. Because if you're ready to go crazy, leave. Just for, I mean, like for a prescribed period of time. A lot of times if I'm super frustrated, I'll just walk around the block. Mm-hmm. If the kids go crazy or do something, I'll say, daddy needs a timeout. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to leave. Mm-hmm. Or if I'm super frustrated with something, I will go in the other room and take a a lot of deep breaths. Mm-hmm. Because I know man's anger does not bring about the righteousness of God. Mm-hmm. So if I'm super angry, then it's not going to lead to something good. Mm-hmm. So I definitely think it's wise. However, if I step away, I have to be the one to initiate the the, the conversation. Right. I was going to say this comes up in our own relationship. Like sometimes I'm more freeze or flight. You're more fight or kind of like let's talk about the thing. And oftentimes I'm a slow processor and I'm really thinking about everything that's been said and how I want to respond. (laughs) I'll pour out my heart and you'll be like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Stop. Stop. Okay. But like making sure that we even sometimes we'll say like we're setting a time to come back to this thing. Tomorrow at eight. Tomorrow at eight, we are going to talk about it. Um, and that is sometimes a missing step. Sometimes like you walk away to cool down, but it never gets revisited and then things fester. Yeah, so. definitely. Yeah. It's, it is pretty hard. It's pretty hurtful to, for like for you to take a break if you're like overwhelmed or want to separate for a little bit and then you never bring it back up. Yeah. That feels like that's, that's rough. Cause yeah. then when I have to bring it back up, I'm like, oh, she doesn't care. Cause she clearly walked away and, and didn't bring it back up. Right. Yeah. It's good. It's really good. Okay. What about a tangible thing we do as a couple and as a family, maybe to grow in our faith together, not just individually? Hmm. I would say that I don't know that there's a ton of things that we've done together to grow spiritually. Um, I think that we tend to kind of you are reading this, you're reading Romans and I'm going through first and second Kings. And then maybe when we have our check-ins together, we're sharing one of the questions actually that we ask each other is what has God been teaching you or how is God challenging you? Uh, but I don't know that we necessarily say we're going to go through this study together. We haven't done that a lot in our relationship. No. And we've, we need to do a better job of praying together. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we tried that, you know, right before bedtime prayer, and then, well, yes, and I would fall asleep. Yes, that's because you prayed too long. You outed yourself <laughs> as being the one to fall asleep. That's fine. <laughs> and you get on me for going too long. It's I'm too just, late. You I'm know, just I trying don't to talk to my heavenly Father. I got a lot yourself. on my heart. Do you go, well, go ahead and pour it out by yourself? <laughs> I was talking to yeah, the back of my eyelids. No, so we need to do. I what gets scheduled gets done. So we don't pray together as much as I wish we did, mm-hmm. particularly in the hard seasons of life. Mm-hmm. I, I think like we pray for each other a lot. Definitely. Like I'm always praying for you. Yeah. And I know that you're always praying for me, but yeah. we don't do a lot of prayer together. When life really hits hard, we do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a a reality of life that in my distress, I cried to the Lord mm-hmm. and he heard me. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, in a lot of ways, I know a lot of couples some of our mentors, they've committed to praying together yeah. every single day. And I want to blame it on the kids as to why we don't do that, but we didn't do it regularly before we had kids. So Yeah. Yeah. It's a goal. Yeah, sh- hashtag goals. goals. For sure. <laughs> hashtag goals. 
Okay, J.O., I think we made it through all the questions. Yes. Uh, anything left to say? Yeah, earlier in the podcast, I mentioned that uh, a lot of my earlier struggles in the last decade have been in trusting God, that God is good. He's a good father. And not that he, that he doesn't want me just to be miserable with my life. So the scripture that has been one of the most profound in my life is something that I have tattooed on my ring finger, Ephesians 3.20. It says, Now to him who is able to do above or beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Shout out to you for doing these real love conversations, Shorty Rock. Thank That's, you. These have been really good. Thank you. It's been a real blessing to hear from people. I love how vulnerable and honest people were. And a uh, sh- major shout out to the man behind it all. Behind the scenes. Who's listening in right now yes. next to us, Mr. Joe Garrett. The man, the myth. The man, the myth, the legend. Okay? <laughs> like, people have been thanking me for this, but really he's the one that everybody needs yes, to be thanking. hundred percent. He takes pictures of me and the guests. We need to get a picture of him. I am taking a picture of him go. right now. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Joe. Cause we couldn't do it without you for yes. sure. As w- well as a lot of other projects at Renaissance. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, this has been fun. Family. I hope you found that conversation with Jordan helpful and encouraging. You know, I was reflecting on how the journey of mine and Jordan's relationship and the start of Renaissance have been so closely aligned. We got married in June 2013 and immediately started gathering people for a future Harlem church plant that at the time we didn't even know would one day be called Renaissance Church. So a lot of the experiences with loss, with handling the simultaneous joys and pains of life, with finding hope and choosing to follow Jesus, even when things don't look the way we want them to, with confronting tough emotions, with knowing God can do far more than what we can hope or imagine. Those things shaped this community called Renaissance. And I hope that if you're a part of Renaissance, you've gotten to feel some of those things. I'm really grateful for Jordan and all I've learned about loving others from him even when that learning has been uncomfortable because of what it has revealed about my wounds, my weaknesses, and my sin. And I am deeply, deeply grateful for everyone who participated in this series, both the people who were interviewed and all of you who've listened. Thanks again to the talented unsung hero, Joe Garrett, our producer and editor. This particular series is coming to an end, but we hope to do more special podcasts in 2022. And so with that, I'm Jessica Rice. I'm signing off. And family, thanks for being on this journey of learning how to love God and love others well. Love.